Today, we're joined by Tara Westover talking about her debut memoir called Educated. This book has been a, you know, like shot from the rocket bestseller about her unusual upbringing in Idaho with her Mormon survivalist family. And after my interview with Tara, we'll share some of our listeners' favorite memoirs, and then I'll share with you some of my favorite memoirs, although if I shared all my favorite memoirs with you, we'd be here for days, but I'll just pick a few. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. In vivid and riveting prose, Tara Westover describes a childhood both harrowing and loving. In her book, Educated, we learn about her upbringing on an Idaho farm in a devout Mormon family who, because what might mildly be described as paranoid streak, live off the grid. No birth certificates, no school, no doctors, no registered existence. Yet despite this and more, like abuse at the hands of one of her brothers, working for her family under dangerous conditions and an impossibly constraining set of rules, she escapes and improbably, if not shockingly, goes on to graduate from Brigham Young, Harvard, and getting a Ph.D. from Cambridge. Despite these severe circumstances, the story poignantly is about a young woman courageously forging her way in the world and then having to reconcile her love for her family with, as one of the reviewers says, an uncomprehending ideological canyon that she cannot or will not cross. Tara, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thanks for having me on the show. So, you know, we started to talk about this right before uh, we started, before we get into the story. In your improbable life, uh, we've now added having a debut book be a blockbuster bestseller, stuck to the bestseller list. I mean, in your sort of surprising journey, this is yet probably another surprise. It's got to be one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me. <laughs> and that's kind of saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. that. Well, well, let's start with this. Why did you decide to tell your story and why now? Well, I mean, a lot of the book is about family and it's about estrangement because I went through this experience where I became estranged from some members of my family. And when I was going through that, I felt strangely isolated, and I didn't feel like I was finding a lot of stories that were told by people who had gone through estrangement sort of recently. I think people write this kind of book, but they tend to write it nearer to the end of their lives Mm. when I think you kind of know how it's going to turn out. And of course, one of the things that is really difficult about estrangement is is not knowing how it's going to turn out and not knowing what is going to happen in the future and if there's going to be a car accident or cancer or something that is going to make you regret your decision. And so I I wanted to write a story 
Um, and I wanted to write a story with that perspective of, that isn't written kind of towards the end of life when you know how things are going to turn out, when you're still trying to figure out and come to terms with and maybe even a little bit forgive yourself for the decisions that you've, that you've had to make. Mm. And one of the things that I wondered about, you had um, journals that you referred back to. Mm. Yeah, quite a lot of them. I started keeping a journal when I was 10 years old, and I wrote in it not every day, but probably most days, you know, right up right up until the present. So that was really helpful when I was trying to reconstruct the reconstruct kind of what had happened. And what I wondered about is in going back to look at those journals and in writing down the story, did it change at all how you thought about your childhood or parents? You know, it did. I think after I'd gone through this difficult period of estrangement, I think I had a a lot of darker memories about my family and about my childhood. And one of the things about writing the book, I think, is I got got the opportunity to remember a lot of the really good things. You know, my mother was an herbalist and a midwife, and uh, we spent a lot of hours kind of walking on the mountain. I grew up in this beautiful mountain in southern Idaho. We spent a lot of hours with her uh, walking on the mountain, gathering herbs that she could stew into tinctures, you know, like mullein flour or yarrow. And there were just a lot of really beautiful things in my in my childhood that I hadn't maybe thought about. My dad owned a junkyard, and for a lot of years when I was a kid, that was kind of an exotic playground that we that we would play in. And so there were there were these really positive things that I was able to to write about and and reclaim. That in a way, I think because the process of becoming estranged from my, from some of my family had been had been kind of ugly, had been so ugly, mm. but I I I felt like I'd lost some of that. And did and did recalling some of those lovelier experiences make the idea of your estrangement more difficult? I think maybe in some ways, but I feel I, I, I don't think so, actually. I think that I think it was important to kind of come to terms with the loss. Um, and I think it was important to remember the good things as well as the bad things. You know, kind of a one of the central things I write about in, uh, in my life is this kind of tumultuous relationship I had with my older brother. Mm. And you know, he was a complicated person. He was very physically aggressive, very emotionally abusive with me, um, and physically abusive with me. But he also, like everyone, he was a complicated person. And one of the reasons it was so hard to get out of that relationship was because he had he had some really good qualities. Like he could be mm. a really kind person. And so when I was writing about it, it seemed very important to write about to write about the good things with him as, as well as the bad. So one of the things that I didn't really remember until I started writing the book is, is our times that he had saved me. You know, there was a time that we were breaking horses together and um, I lost control of the horse I was on, which had, was, was fairly well broken, but I lost control. The reins went over its head and the horse just kind of ran off. And uh, and my foot got caught in the stirrup, which if you know anything about breaking horses, it's kind of a game over situation if your foot is caught in the stirrup, because it means you won't just fall clean off when you get bucked mm. off. You'll you'll be dragged and your head will hit a rock and it will split open. Um, and my not brother a good was, thing. No, it's not a good situation. Not a good thing. And the only person around that could have helped me was my brother. And he was behind me on a horse that had never had a rider on it in its, in its entire life. This was its first time. And and I thought, you know, there's no way that he is going to whip that horse into the kind of frenzy that he would need to to catch my horse and and save my life. But you know, that's exactly what he what he did. And it was a 1,200 pound thoroughbred. You know, it was a real possibility that he wouldn't have been able to get control of the horse again, and that we both would have been hurt. So you know, he was capable of this tremendous self sacrifice, but he was also, as I said, really 
emotionally and physically ag- aggressive with me. And so I think when I was writing the book, it, it just seemed important to try to get hold of, of all of that and try, try in as much as I could to, to capture what it was like, but also why it was so difficult to walk away mm. from the relationship. You know, Tara, among the many parts of the book that caused me to pause and be reflective was your relationship with with Sean. So for our, our listeners who haven't read the book, and gazillions of you have uh, read the book, Sean was um, certainly emotionally abusive and, you know, was like torture light in his relationship with you. Yet you write about that relationship where I, as a reader, absolutely felt the 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 connection, like that road trip you took when you took the truck out. Tell us about that that journey when one of your relatives, I think it was, needed the truck uh, brought out on a set of deliveries that they couldn't do when you and your brother took off? Yeah, so he was doing long-haul trucking or over-the-road trucking, which just means when you take a semi and you go out for, you know, days and days at a time. So I went with him on a trip. I think we went to New Mexico and then into California and then up almost to Canada and then and then back again. So he was so yeah, he was just driving the truck and I was just with him. I was about 15, he was 25. And and we had this, you know, in a lot of ways, it was a really amazing time. I'd never gone anywhere. I'd never seen anything. And now I was kind of seeing some of these cities. And, and we had a we had a specific way of talking to each other where we would um, we would we would exchange the first letters of 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 words. So instead of being little sister, he would call me Siddalister. And, you know, we had this really loving, wonderful relationship. And, and then he also he was really into martial arts and he would show me kind of self-defense holds and things like that. I mean, I guess what I didn't know at the time was later he would be using a lot of these holds on, on, on you. me and not as a demonstration. And and did the the kindness of that relationship make the way he treated you at his worst even more complicated for what that meant about you? I mean, you talk about in the book how his calling you a whore when he was um, hurting you defined you for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I was a teenage girl, and I think having the the person, especially the man in my life, who was probably the most important person in my life, uh, refer to me as a whore, I think that would really settle into my identity in a pretty serious way, so much so that, yeah, when I was 16, I wrote a journal entry about my brother that included the line, it's strange how you give the people you love so much power over you. Mm. Um, Because I think by calling me that, he had in a lot of ways, to find me to myself. And I'm just not sure there's a a greater power than that. The other part of the book, you know, I think this was Sean, and I think this with your mother and father. So the inconsistencies that existed in each one of these members of your family. So your mother is obliging to your dad, yet when you wanted to take up acting, she was there for you. When your father was saying you can't go to college. She was encouraging you uh, to go to college, yet she wouldn't do anything or early on accept that Sean was hurting you. And your father did some of the same inconsistencies. I think about the moment when, after he said you absolutely couldn't go to college, and at the second year when you when you only had some scholarship money, he then offered to help out with some of the financial aid. How did you then or now 
grapple with these wide inconsistencies on each of their behalves? Well, I think people just are complicated. I yeah. mean, my dad didn't want me to go to school. He didn't. That's why he kept us out of school. We were kept at home. We were never allowed to go to school. And when I decided to go to university when I was 16, you know, he was really against that. I think he was, he'd been against it a little bit when my brother Tyler had wanted to go but um, I think it was a little bit more palatable for him that my brother would go, but that I would go. You know, a daughter was, was really not all right. And, but he, and so he was opposed to it. But at the same time, he was my dad, and he loved me. And when he saw that I was sad, that I was struggling, that I really wanted something and I wasn't able to get it, I think he, he had the same impulse that a lot of parents have, which is he wanted to help. Mm. And how about with your mom? I mean, one of the really beautiful... Uh, pages in the book is about when your mom did recognize Sean's behavior towards you. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, when I first when I first approached my parents, I mean, I was at Cambridge by that point, and I approached my parents and said, I told them about my brother's violence, and I told them how long it had been going on, and I asked for them to kind of help me, maybe try to put a stop to it. And my mother, I, I approached my mother first. And she she believed me. She she said that she wished that she had done more, that she wished she'd done more to protect me. And it was kind of a it was a very important moment for me because it was almost like in um in when she told me that she hadn't ever been the mother to me that she wished she'd been. It was kind of like for me she she became that mother in a way for the first time. Mm. Uh and it, it made it really hard later when my dad when I when when I told my dad about it he decided that I was lying. And in fact, he started telling people that I was possessed as a way to explain why I was saying the things I was saying about my brother. And my mother at that point um, just just suddenly changed changed her mind effectively and, and supported my dad. Mm, that must have been painful. Yeah. And I think it was, you know, I don't know if it's worse that she had believed me at first or if in some ways it's better. I think at the time it made it much worse. But in the in the long run now, um, I think it maybe made it better because that's the version of my mother that I think of mm. when I think of my mother. And it seems important to have to have that to think about. You know, what What just occurred to me as I was listening to you talk to uh, us about each of them is about a year ago, I interviewed Daphne Merkin, uh, who has battled very severe depression over her life. And her parents um, were not quite like your parents. They were ortho, but, but they were ideologically Orthodox Jews. And certainly she experienced what would be called emotional abuse, um, if you know, or disregard. And one of the things that we talked about was it made me think about, well, what happened to her parents that drove them to be those people? And I wonder the same thing with your parents. What Do you have any sense of their backgrounds or understanding of them that drove them to this kind of behavior as parents? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, my parents were radicals in a lot of ways. They didn't believe in public education. They didn't believe in doctors. They didn't believe in hospitals. So we were... We never went to school. We were never taken to the doctor, not when we were ill and not when we were injured. We were injured kind of a lot because my dad had a And bad guard. injuries you weren't allowed pretty, to go to. Pretty the... bad injuries. Yeah. People would get lit on fire. They would get third-degree burns. They wouldn't be taken to the hospital. So they had these really extreme beliefs. But I think, you know, the extreme beliefs were the kind of thing, even when I was at Cambridge and I was living a very different kind of life, we were kind of navigating those. And it was possible to still be their daughter 
and still be a family, even if we didn't agree or didn't live the same. It was difficult, but we were kind of managing it. And, mm-hmm. you know, what broke my family apart wasn't wasn't that radicalism. It really was their response to my brother and to me telling them about my brother. And that I don't think necessarily has to do with their radicalism. Maybe it does in some ways. But I think there are a lot of, of families who respond in this way to intersibling violence. I don't think it's I, I don't think my parents were, were in any way unique in this mm, yeah. response. Because the other question I was gonna ask you for in that particular instance about your brother, like what drives a parent other than a keen interest in outright denial to protect one child over another like that? I think Probably fear and love both. You know, my mother, when I first confronted my mother uh, about it, we had a conversation and I I asked her why she'd never done anything because she kind of admitted that she knew things, something had been going on. And I'd asked her why she never did anything. And she told me that she said she said that it always seemed to her that I was strong um, and and rational. And and it, it was obvious to her that my brother wasn't. And I think what she said to me was that she'd always felt this need to really protect the the more vulnerable, Mm. the more vulnerable child. And so I think, I think for my mother, I think it had something to do with that. I think for my dad, I think it was probably more fear. And, you know, he loved my brother, but he was, he was afraid, I think, of of what would happen if, uh, if we were forced to confront confront my brother's issue with violence. Yeah. Have you been, um, have people reached out to you who are victims of familial abuse? I do get some letters from people, and I wish I could be more helpful. I think, um, you know, it's such a difficult thing, and I'm not even really qualified to give people advice. So all I can really do is, is try to be a listening ear. I did hope that the book would help some people in as much as I think what's what can be hard, again, is just that feeling that you're the only one going through something. Right. And right. So, you know, I try to help people. If they write me, I, I can try to listen. I'm not really qualified to give advice. But uh, really the, the way, the thing that I hope would help is is just the story and, and being able to kind of stand up and say, this is this is what happened to me, not just the violence. The violence mm-hmm. happened, but also the 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 term that we the, we call gaslighting, you know, when people kind of bend your reality. And I have a theory about abuse. I think all abuse, no matter what kind it is, is foremost an assault on the mind. And I think if you're going to abuse someone, you have to invade their reality and you have to distort it. Mm. And that's a lot of what I really wanted to write about because I, even when I started writing the book, was still in a situation where I said, look, my brother, my brother is, is like this. And, and, and other people in my family had seen it and had, and had experienced it. And girlfriends of his had seen it and experienced it. And yet my, my parents and several of my siblings were still outright denying it. And so a, a lot of what I wanted to write about and try to try to capture for people who haven't experienced it, but also for people who have, is that just reality bending that happens mm-hmm. when you are not allowed to have your own experiences. And when people aren't assaulting, not so much your body, although that, that too, but, but especially your mind. And, and And making you think it's either not really happening or you deserve it or it's in your best interest. I think it's those two things. I think number one that you that you deserve what what they're doing, and yeah. then the second thing is that what they're doing isn't isn't really that bad. And I think the first one is kind of easy because people 
people really internalize guilt and shame and self-loathing, I think, when they're hurting. But the second the second one, I think, requires more active kind of assaults on people's reality. And my brother was really, really good at, at that. So we mm. would have, you know, there'd be something would happen where he would attack me or he he would grab me. There was one time I had I actually had a friend with me. I was 17 and I had a friend there. And my brother, Sean, he grabbed me by my hair and he, he dragged me down the hallway and he shoved my head in the toilet. And after it was over, he he just convinced me that it was a game. And he just said to me, you know, next time we're having fun, you really just need to tell me if something's wrong. Um, <laughs> I didn't even know I was hurting you. And I, and I internalized that perspective 100 yeah. percent, so much so that I tried to convince my friend that that's what had happened. And of course, he he just didn't buy it. He knew what he'd seen, but he didn't really try to reason with me for very long. Cause I think he could just see how deeply under my brother's power I was. Tara, so you've experienced this um, unique kind of a childhood. Your brother Tyler had, I'll use the word, escape, but your other siblings were around. What What do you think ultimately gave you the courage to leave? You know, you you had a job, you were studying to take the ACTs, you were looking into applying. Where'd you even find that courage to take those steps? You know, it was kind of gradual, I guess. I mean, I, I, I didn't really know what college was. I'd never set foot in a classroom in my life. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what, what it would be, what it would offer. But I did have my older brother, Tyler, come back and he saw, you know, I was working construction for my dad. And I think he had some idea of what my relationship with my brother, Sean, was like, and he was concerned about it. And he's actually the one that told me, look, you can just 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 apply for this university and just tell them you're homeschooled and you just have to pass one test and, and, and then you can get out of here. And I don't think, you know, it didn't really feel possible to me. I had very little formal education. We had been somewhat educated at home, but not in any kind of rigorous way. We didn't even have textbooks. You know, when I did start to study for the ACT, I couldn't solve any of the math problems. I'd never heard of algebra. And, uh, and I had to go buy a textbook and start teaching it to myself. So in a lot of ways, it just didn't really feel possible that he was the one that told me it's one lousy test. If you can just scrape through this test, everything, everything will be different. And of course, what he didn't tell me was if I did that successfully, I would, I would have to go to school and that would cause a lot of problems. <laughs> you forgot that part. I'd, I'd never actually been in a classroom, you know, so when I arrived at university, I was just completely unprepared for it. And how did you adjust once? So you got into Brigham Young. What was it like coming from the world, uh, coming from the world you came from and going to that world? What, what did you make friends? Did it was it more difficult than you thought? Was it easy? What was that like? It was not easy. It was really difficult. I hadn't really spent a lot of time. I mean, I'd never had a friend really uh, who had who went to public school in my life. I'd, I'd grown up with my immediate family and, and some of my cousins. And then there'd been, I'd had a couple of friends whose families were like my family. You know, they, they didn't go to school and they didn't believe in doctors, but I really just wasn't very well socialized. So I was pretty awkward. I didn't wear the clothes that other kids wore. I didn't really know how to talk to them. And then there was the issue that I just didn't have any knowledge of. Mm. I just hadn't had the education that other people had. So one of my first lectures I was in, I raised my hand in a class and, and I asked what the Holocaust was because I hadn't ever heard of it. And of course, the classroom fell silent and everyone was looking at the floor. I think people thought 
that I was being anti-Semitic. I think they thought mm-hmm. I was denying it. You know, they heard it as kind of, what is this? And I very much meant it as, what, what is this? But they probably and, couldn't um, imagine that. Yeah, and I think that they just heard it. So there were things that were very isolating because people would misunderstand kind of the source of, of my of my awkwardness or, um, or, or what I was saying. And, and then there was a, some ways I isolated myself because I had grown up in a much more radical version of that religion. And so these were very kind of mainstream Mormon kids, you know, pretty normal Mormon kids. They went to the doctor, they had gone to school. And, uh, and my family's version was, was just a lot more extreme than that. And so to me, they seemed, you know, these like very upstanding Mormon kids just seemed very licentious and kind of, um, you know, troubling to me. And so in some ways I would even isolate myself quite a bit. You know, uh, uh, listening to it made me wonder about this, that if I think about the two worlds that you've lived in, it made me think about uh, when you talk to people who are immigrants, uh, you know, in the United States or in other places, that they often feel, even after a long period of time, that they don't necessarily belong in either world. Mm. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I feel like that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I do. I do feel like that. I'm, I'm not someone who's ever been entirely comfortable, I think, wherever, wherever that I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that might just be a fact of my life moving forward. And what, was it, what were uh, some family members' reaction to your writing the book? I had, I had some brothers that I'm, that I'm still in touch with, that I'm, that I'm close with, my aunts and uncles and cousins, and they've all been really, really supportive. I haven't talked to, you know, the family I'm estranged from, I haven't, I haven't really talked to them about it. I told them I was writing it, but I haven't discussed it with them. Mm. And do, do the family members that you're in contact with, do they have conversations with the members of your family from which you're estranged? Um, yeah, some of them, yeah. Uh, I don't know to what extent. Right. I'm not sure. And, and I wouldn't really want to com- comment on their relationship. Yeah, of course that, so. not. Of course <laughs> not. Um, and do you ever see, so you, you mentioned that the reason, the trigger point for the estrangement was more about their denial and response to what Sean did to you? Well, there were things that were difficult before that. You know, I mean, my family, they were living this really, they were living in, in a pretty extreme way. I mean, my one of the things that happened my senior year um, at, at, at college is my dad got really seriously injured. He was working in the junkyard and he was removing a fuel tank from a car and he decided for whatever reason not to drain the fuel before he lit the cutting torch to remove the tank. And of course, what happened is the car exploded and he was burned just terribly. You know, a lot of third degree burns from his waist up, his hands, his face, his chest. And my parents made the decision to treat that at home. Um, yeah. And, you know, they didn't have a, an IV. They didn't have no morphine. And, you know, he nearly he nearly died. Uh, he didn't die, but their recovery was months and months, and he was never the same. His hands were kind of frozen in this, almost his right hand especially was kind of frozen in this kind of claw-like attitude because the tendons shrivel if they're burned that badly. And then he doesn't have fingerprints, and his face would be quite waxy. So they would they would make these decisions that were, you know, very difficult to watch them making those kinds of of life decisions. And I'm sure it was difficult in reverse. I'm sure it was difficult for them to watch me living a life that they didn't agree with. So there were things that were making it difficult for us. But really, 
you know, we were navigating that. We were we were finding ways to still be a family despite those those big differences. And it really was my my brother Sean and and my parents' response to that. It was really the thing that we just couldn't we couldn't get over. And can you imagine circumstances under which you would reconcile with them? Yeah, I think I'm always going to be looking for signs that my family culture has shifted away from kind of secrecy and enabling. So I would say I I watch for those signs, but mm. I don't wait for them. I've kind of, I guess I've come to accept that whether or not my family changes, especially my parents, whether or not my parents change is not really under my power. Right. And, and accepted trying that. to live a full life either way. Yeah. yeah. It's not really something I get to decide. I don't, I don't need them to change for me to love them, but I do need them to change to have them in my life. And that's just not something I have control over. Yeah, and you know, it 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 was one of the one of the observations I had as I as I read the book that I totally appreciated the love you had for your parents. Yet you understand in reading your book your need to nonetheless se- separate yourself from them, and those two things can coexist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that sometimes you, in some ways, I feel like since I have separated myself from my parents, even though that was hard and it's taken me a very long time to even partially come to terms with that decision, I also feel like in a way it's helped me let go of a lot of the anger. You know, Mm. I have a theory about anger. I think anger is is important. I think it's a self-preservation mechanism that the brain uses to get you out of situations or, or away from people who will do you harm. So I think maybe when you're when you're in danger or you're in you're in the proximity of toxic relationships, you kind of need your anger. I feel like if I were still if I were still going to see my family, if I were still around my brother, if I were still um, around my parents who are defending his his violence, I think I would need my anger. I think mm-hmm. I would need it every day. And in a way, it's almost because I don't see them that I, I feel like I can let go of a lot of that because I don't need it. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about the role of anger. That's just how that's definitely how I have experienced it. And in terms of you know thinking about forgiveness, especially, I think a lot of times in our stories that we tell, we equate we equate forgiveness with reconciliation, or we treat mm-hmm. reconciliation as the highest form of forgiveness. But that's not really. You know, that wasn't really possible for me, and I needed to feel like I could forgive my parents regardless of whether or not I ever reconciled with them. And so mm-hmm. I had to kind of come up with a different definition of what forgiveness might look like. And for me, I think it, it had to do with um, not just with an absence of anger, but also with a kind of presence of self-love. That is to say that you, you learn to actually choose yourself. And to mm-hmm. believe and to kind of come to understand that there are there are circumstances under which, you know, with the obligations that you owe to your family, you also owe obligations to yourself and that there are situations where it's OK to choose to choose you and to affirmatively take care of yourself. And that is something that for a lot of years I didn't I didn't know or understand. And if you'd asked me if there were any limits to the obligations I owed my family, I would have said no. Yeah. And it, it took me quite a long time, I think, to realize that there could be a tension between what I owed to my my family and what I owed to myself and that there might be a scenario in which I could I could I could choose myself. And that's a message, you know, talking about, you know, when books like this are written and as you said early on, you're telling a story that you hadn't read. That message that you just talked about about forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation. 
is probably there's probably lots of people out there that that could be their aha moment hearing that from you. Well, I thought, I kind of hoped, you know, I think stories have a really particular role that they play in, in our lives. I think they tell us, I think they tell us how we're supposed to feel. I think mm-hmm. they tell us when we're supposed to feel proud, when we're supposed to feel ashamed. Because what we do is we take characters who, and we look at the decisions that they make, characters and stories, and we judge them. And right. we decide whether we think what they did is okay or, or not okay. And I guess I thought I'll put my story forward and people can do that. People who have Mm -hmm. had to make difficult estrangement decisions, maybe they're holding on to a lot of guilt in their own lives. And and, and maybe they'll look at my, the decisions I made and maybe they'll think that that they're not okay, but maybe they will be able to see why, why I did what I did. Mm -hmm. And, And just maybe if they have some empathy for me in this situation I was in, maybe they can have some empathy for themselves because yeah. I think it can be very hard to empathize with yourself in those kinds of situations. It's so much easier to just internalize all the negative feelings and and just internalize all the all the blame. I mean, I remember when I was the thing that I struggled maybe the most with was the estrangement of my own parents because I went through that period when my dad was telling people I was possessed and my mother also was doing that. And I just struggled with that really fundamental question of how do I believe that I'm a good person when I know that my mother doesn't believe that mm. I'm a good person? And, you know, it, I think of all the things that took me a long time to, to develop, it, it was that, the ability to have my own kind of faith in myself, even yeah. when my, my parents uh, no longer did have faith in me. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's no profounder control over ourselves and our sense of ourselves and our parents, whether even when we didn't live with them, you know, if they abandoned us, if they treated you bad, you know, it's a defining quality of who we are. Yeah, I think I think your parents, you know, they kind of form your first identity. They kind of form the world for you. Yeah. And and that's a universal experience. I think part of what it means to grow up is just learning to define yourself both in you know, connection to and encounter distinction to your parents. Yeah. Tara, it's been really lovely to have this conversation with you and, you know, all your honesty and uh, tenderness in talking about it, I think, is, you know, important for so many of us to learn from. And so I I really want to I really want to thank you for uh, the book and 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 this conversation uh, with us. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I have one last question, and you can answer it in one of two ways. I normally ask, what's the book that changed your life? Um, you can answer that one, or how has your book changed your life? <laughs> I don't know if I could pick a single book. I feel like every book I read, I get something different from and at different times in my life. But um, I think if I had to answer it about my own book and writing it, I think I think a little bit about what we were talking about at the beginning of going through the story and, and writing, writing the good things and the bad things. And, you know, a lot of the book is about gaslighting and is about people assaulting reality. And it, it seemed important to me to go back and reclaim both sides, the good things and the bad things. Because what I really wanted was a kind of mental integrity. And to mm-hmm. me, what that meant was that nobody could take from me the good, but nobody could obscure from me the bad. Mm-hmm. So I just, uh, I, I wanted the right to live in my own head. And 
I just wanted, it, it was important not to be angry all the time and not to be someone who had no good memories. Because there was a time in my life when I was angry and, and I really became someone who had no good memories. But it was equally important for me not to be someone that, that other people could, could just come in and obscure the past and invade, invade reality and, and just distort it. And so I, I think the book, what it did for me was, was allow me to really grasp hold of, of a more complicated, nuanced story about, about myself so that I could be someone, I guess at the end of writing it, I felt like I was someone who had had a beautiful childhood. I also felt like I was someone who had a difficult childhood. And, and I, I'm grateful to have both of those. Mm-hmm. And have them coexist. Exactly. Tara, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate it. And good luck out there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Tara Westover. I was particularly touched by her conversation about how we go about forgiving people, uh, particularly family members. I, I, was, I was very touched by that part of the conversation, so I hope you enjoyed the interview. Now, we've got a couple of listeners that um, wrote to us about their favorite memoirs, and Jenna wrote to us and said, Hi, you've asked for our favorite memoirs, so here's mine. Where is the Mango Princess by Kathy Crimmins? Her memoir is of her experience when her husband sustained a traumatic brain injury while they were on vacation in Ontario. Jenna said she read this before she got married 10 years ago to a man who himself had survived a TBI before she met him. And Jenna said, I still think about it often. I'm really enjoying your podcast. Thank you, Jenna, and thank you for making the effort. And then we heard from another listener, Gina. She said, excellent timing. I just finished this amazing memoir, meaning educated, last night, and look forward to hearing the interview. Some of her other favorite memoirs are The Fact of a Body, When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air is one of my favorite as well. After the Eclipse and H is for Hawk. And the red parts. Atrus for Hawk uh, was one of these runaway uh, memoirs a couple of years ago and is also on my list. For some of the memoirs that I've loved, and I read a lot of memoirs and a lot of biographies, so this is just like a tiny little tip of the iceberg. Some of these are new and some are quite old. One of the older ones is a book called 50 Days of Solitude by Doris Grumbach. I was fascinated by the idea that Doris took 50 days, totally cut off, and still felt bombarded. Doris is a beautiful writer, and her talking about these 50 days was about the inability often to be thinking about our own true motives because of being surrounded by so many other opinions and the way people want you to be. And I think Doris uh, Grumbach was in her 70s when she wrote this, and maybe it's the kind of thing you want to do when you're older, but I read it in my 50s, and I was fascinated by it, although I haven't arranged for 50 Days of Solitude yet, but I'll, I'll keep you posted on that. For any of us, thinking about being alone for that amount of time and giving yourself the luxury of understanding what it is that really would contribute to making you happy or what really matters to you was 
when I read it, which was probably 20 years ago, just struck the right chord with me. And, you know, I think the striking the right chord is a a whole element of reading in general, but particularly reading a memoir, that when you read a memoir that is resonating with what's going on in your life at that point, its impact is probably greater. One of my most favorite memoirs is Personal History by Catherine Graham. Catherine Graham was the um, head of the Washington Post. She now is the star of a movie called The Post, which addresses the time when they chose to publish the Pentagon Papers. But the entirety of Catherine Graham's life, growing up as sort of a protected, pampered daughter of Eugene Myers, who was the owner of the Washington Post, to the person that became this incredibly accomplished businesswoman, making very difficult decisions with great consequences, was watching her evolve, listening to her talk about how she raised her kids, what she thought about. Her husband ended up committing suicide. That, coupled with the fact that because of her family standing and her own standing, she had met everyone of consequence in Washington over a 50- or 60-year span. And her perspective on these people was incredibly thoughtful and even-handed. I loved everything about the book. I loved her story of how she came to be who she was. I loved the time period it covered. I loved the idea about the newspaper. It's definitely a top memoir. A a memoir I read recently is called Making Trouble by Cecil Richards. And Cecil Richards was the head of Planned Parenthood. She just stepped down. She was the daughter of Ann Richards, who was a character who was the governor of Texas. And Cecil Richards grew up with activism in her bones. And as well as a not only a desire to make a difference, but willing to be criticized or ostracized as a result. And she reminds us that we all have an obligation to making trouble for things that we believe in. So that's a pretty new memoir that I would also highly recommend. An old memoir is called Running in the Family by Michael Ondaatje. And I thought about this book because Michael Ondaatje has a new book out. And I had the opportunity to uh, spend a little bit of time with him in New York last week. And I had said to him, you know, he's written English Patient, which is what he's often known for. His new book is called Warlight. So in the course of uh, spending a little bit of time with Michael, I had mentioned that of all his masterpieces, of which there are many, Running in the Family was the one that still stuck with me. And Running in the Family is his memoir of uh, growing up in Sri Lanka, which at one point was Ceylon. It's not only about growing up in Sri Lanka and the relationship with his family, but it's about the role of memory. And do we remember things accurately? Does it matter if we remember it accurately, if that's the way it resonates with us? It's got a tiny bit of magic realism, which seems like an odd juxtaposition with a memoir, but it all 
works. I adore the way uh, Michael Ondaatje writes. I love learning about Sri Lanka and about a very different time, particularly 20s and 30s in that part of the world. And the last one I'll mention, which is another old one, and maybe next time we'll talk about new ones, is a book called With a Daughter's Eye by Mary Catherine Bateson. Mary Catherine Bateson was Margaret Mead's daughter. And this is a memoir about her mother, Margaret Mead, and her dad, Gregory Bateson. And you can imagine, given that Margaret Mead was often away and away for extended periods of time, and Mary Catherine was brought up by other people, and then her parents would swoop in, they were divorced. And then she ultimately worked with her mother. Margaret Mead's another one of these towering female figures that I'm fascinated by. And hearing the perspective of a daughter about a highly accomplished parent is a very different way of being introduced to a very well-known person. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.